So, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, thank you all for coming. I'm, uh, we're, we're delighted with the interest in this session. Um, this is, in fact, and I, I, let me first of all welcome you. My name's uh, Tim Besley. Uh, I'm just chairing this event. But this is the first uh, a plenary event in our annual growth week. Uh, and so we're going to have a, a few just introductory comments from some of the uh, key parties in, in the International Growth Center. And so I'd like to begin by inviting Mark Henstridge, uh, the Executive Director, to come and say a few words of welcome. Mark. Well, thank you very much, and thank you, Tim. I'm Mark Henstridge. I'm the Acting Executive Director of the International Growth Centre, and it's my privilege to welcome you to Growth Week. We think Growth Week is unique. There's no other global event which so powerfully combines people responsible for important decisions with people who specialize in generating ideas. This is where the questions which arise in making good policy can find answers supported by innovative research. This is the third growth week. Over the two years since the first one, the IGC has grown rapidly. We now have 11 programs in 10 partner countries and 119 research projects. And there's a significant difference between Growth Week today compared to two years ago. This time, the program is largely IGC work. And we can now look back at what were then ambitious aspirations for supporting policy and show that we've started to deliver on them. The vision of two years ago was most clearly articulated by the first executive director of the IGC, Gobind Nankani, who, as many of you know, sadly died recently. Gobind's funeral was held in Washington last week. As well as being profoundly moving, it was an occasion which reflected his many strengths. Most importantly, his ability to draw people together. He was naturally one of the world's unifiers. That celebration of his life brought together people from Ghana, his home country, a country about which he was strongly patriotic. He was truly proud to be African. But also people from India, where he went to school and where he worked for GDN before coming to the IGC. And people from Brazil, where he worked with great distinction for the World Bank as well as people from myriad other places around the world. Gobind personified an appreciation of rigorous scholarship, as well as first-hand experience of policymaking and reform, not just at the World Bank, but also in the government of Ghana, most recently as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisers. He was sensitive to the pressures on decision-makers, as well as to the value of relevant, timely, quality research that could answer decision-makers' questions and provide a robust evidence base for tough choices. <coughs> I hope that you will find, over these three days of Growth Week, examples of our work that is now making that vision of research supporting policy a reality. The people who matter most for the IGC are those who face the difficult decisions, such as on tax administration and public investment programs in Pakistan, the shaping of mineral taxation in Zambia, 
industrial policy in Ethiopia, monetary policy in Tanzania and the East African community, export promotion in Sierra Leone and in Rwanda, fiscal policy in Bihar, and the efficiency of the port in Maputo in Mozambique. And there are many others, highlighted both in the updated IGC booklet and in the sessions of this conference. So two years on from the first growth week, we've shown that the IGC model of country engagement can work. Our challenge is to make it sustainable. This entails continuing to build uh, a distinctive, focused, efficient and innovative institution. It is a platitude to say that institutions matter, but they do, not least because they're hard to build, as the real substance of this session, which I'm holding up by talking, will doubtless underscore. So let me close by again welcoming you to Growth Week. I hope that today and tomorrow and Wednesday provides you with a meaningful interface between research and policy at this unique event. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. I'm now going to invite Robin Burgess, the academic director of IGC, to say a few words. Robin. Thank you very much. Um, I wanted to just uh, talk a little bit about the idea of the IGC. Many of you will not be intimately familiar with the, with the organization. And the way I wanted to do that was actually just to take a, a single example, which I think is poignant given Govan's recent departure, which is our engagement with a state in India called uh, Bihar, which is also relevant because we have the deputy chief minister before us. My first sort of... Uh, bit of country engagement with the IGC was accompanying Gobin to Patna in the summer of 2009, so roughly two, you know, a little bit over two years ago. And what was interesting about that is that, firstly, the, the top brass, as it were, the chief minister Nitish Kumar, who is now a recently well-known international figure, uh, and Sushil Modi welcomed us. So it's very clear that the government wanted analytical inputs. They wanted help uh, in generating growth in the state. The thing that struck me the most about that visit, uh, having been around India and once before to, to Bihar eight years before, was A, that there were things changing and that the government was extremely receptive. But it's just the fact that we're talking about 100 million people. <laughs> this is, you know, in the recent census, that's roughly the, the number of people in a single state in Bihar. And having been in a very low-growth equilibrium, not just for years but decades, the fact that it then had moved up to a much higher growth rate really was, was a very striking fact. And the engagement that followed was basically meeting people like Shaibal Gupta, who ran a, a small uh, institute there, who opened his arms to the IGC, allowed us to set up offices. And then the hiring of lead academics like Moitrish Gatak and more recently Rohini Samanathan. Moitrish is a professor here, Rohini Samanathan is a professor at uh, the Delhi School. But even more importantly, the fact that in the last round of recruits, we managed to hire Isha Chabra from the Planning Commission. We managed to hire uh, Chinmay Kumar, who's a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. So these are incredibly bright young economists. And over time, we've managed to build in a number of projects involving top academics from not just India, but from all over the world, who have become really interested in Bihar, who go there on a regular basis. And the reason I think that's valuable is not just that we take up the suggestions of the, of the government, which is important so that we are demand-led, but we actually are 
honest brokers of what you might call uh, the received wisdom. So often we will say, actually, that's not a very good idea. It's not a good idea to put all your money into rural development. You do have to think about cities. You do have to think about industrialization. And things that we initially went to be horror sort of turned around. Everybody was talking about agricultural productivity, rural-led development, and so forth. So I think for me, and starting with this initial visit with Gobind, it's, it's actually not very long. I mean, summer of 2009 was two years ago. To see the number of projects, the, the fact that we have these offices filled with young people who are working uh, on different projects, I think is at least a, a signal that that vision that Gobin had at the outset has come to fruition. And we can see this sort of replicated in quite a number of places now. I think I can't remember the, the exact tally, 11 or so around the world. So I think it's a, it, 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 it is an interesting model, and I think it is definitely coming to fruition, and I'm absolutely thrilled that not only uh, did uh, the, the Deputy Chief Minister manage to come, but he brought with him the, the Minister for Human Resource Development, the Secretary for Commercial Taxes, a whole range of people from ADRI. Uh, and so uh, I'd like to close by using that example to, uh, to give, give you a, a, an idea of how the IGC works. And just in, 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 in the final sort of minute, I think what, why it works is very clear. The biggest reason it works is there is independence and autonomy. In other words, we are basically, when we, come to, when we come to partner, we are viewed as scholars. We are viewed as scholars that listen, but we are nonetheless viewed as scholars. They understand that we have no axe to grind. They were people who were interested in finding out what is driving growth in, in, in the state of Bihar. The second reason, I think, is the fact that we can come with certain academic credentials. So we can come, we are good, you know, we are good academics, we're in good universities, and that matters. They're getting the best, the best minds to work on their problems. But I think the most important thing, and I think, I think uh, Sushil Modi will, will, share, will share this view, is that we're, we're willing to go there and stay. <laughs> we're not just coming in on the plane and then flying out you know, two or three days. I mean, people like me are doing that. But there's a continual presence, there's a continual office there, so that if a, a secretary or a minister has an issue he wants to raise, he can go to the country director, he can go to the lead academic or the deputy director and raise those questions. And I think that's extremely important because you saw very much when we initially went with Gobin that everybody else, the IFC, DFID, uh, the World Bank, were coming in and they were just coming in for, for a couple of days on a particular uh, few. So I think it's, in, in, in a kind of humble way, we've added at least some analytical capacity. I can't claim we've increased the growth rate of, of Bihar, but I do think we've at least pr provided a, a degree of, sort of intervention in the world of ideas there. We're willing to sort of take seriously looking at the growth process and how to make it more rapid. And I hope that that does mean that over time we see not just thousands but actually millions of Biharis uh, exiting poverty uh, in Bihar and in other countries who are working. Thank you very much. Thank you, Robin. And, and last but by no means least, we have Sarah Cook from DFID, uh, the head of the growth team. Sarah. Uh, 
thank you very much, everybody, and good evening. Um, as Tim says, my name is Sarah Cook. I'm the head of the Growth and Resilience Department in uh, the Department for International Development, the UK Government's Aid uh, uh, Programme. Um, I'm delighted to be here this evening. We've been the sole funder of the IGC for the last few years, last three years since its inception, and it's a very important programme to us. Before I talk a bit more about that, I did just want to send our condolences to his family and also to the IGC colleagues for the sad loss of Gobind. As Mark said, he made a huge contribution to the huge progress that's been made throughout the um, IGC, and uh, we're, we're very sad to hear of his passing. Uh, the UK and DFID is particularly committed to uh, seeing progress on growth uh, in the developing world. We believe that sustainable and inclusive economic growth is vital to poverty reduction. Uh, we need to, it's, it provides jobs, it provides economic opportunities, both raising prosperity, building resilience to shocks, and also contributing to tax revenues so countries can deliver the public services their citizens need. Uh, the UK approach is very much around three broad areas. We want to see and support governments to improve the policy environment for economic growth and for investment. We also help to leverage private investment into developing countries. And that, that approach is also complemented by social protection to help the very poorest and the most vulnerable um, uh, lift themselves out of poverty. And DFID, this, the timing of uh, my speaking this evening is very timely, actually, because we're also increasingly focusing our attentions on fragile states. Um, 20 of DFID's 27 focus countries are defined as fragile states, and by 2014, 30% uh, of UK aid will be spent uh, in unstable and fragile states. So I just wanted to run you through very briefly some of the headline results that we're aiming to achieve over the next four years across our work on economic growth and wealth creation. We're being very ambitious about the work that we, and the results that we aim to achieve. So, for example, we aim to help more than 50 million work or provide more than 50 million with the means to work themselves out of poverty over the next four years. We aim to help half of the countries in Africa benefit from freer trade. We want to secure the right to land and property for more than 6 million people. And we want to also help more than 50 million people access savings, credit and insurance. As you can imagine, this is a very ambitious agenda, but we're very confident that we can deliver those results over the next four years. Mm. And the IGC is a very important programme to help uh, make or help contribute to those overall results that we're looking to achieve. Um, Robin has already set out some of the areas where it's distinctive, and I think we would agree with that. We really believe that uh, the provision of world-class independent policy advice is the real comparative advantage of the IDC. We believe that working directly with governments and responding to their demand for the policy advice that they need is the real way to achieve results and to have impact on the ground. And as Robin says, we also believe that the no-strings approach there's no donor agenda, the IGC is independent from DFID, can really help to give the, the governments the policy advice that they need and are looking for. And we've also been very pleased with the progress that the IGC has made over the last three years. Mark ran through a very long list of programmes and achievements of the IGC, which I think are documented in the, uh, the brochure that's in your papers. And we think that that's you know, making real progress and beginning to show uh, very concrete results on the ground. So I'll just finish there, but I wanted to say just how uh, supportive DFID is of the International Growth Centre, and we're particularly interested to listen to this session that we're going to hear now, so I won't go on. Um, as I said, the Fragile States Agenda is very important to us, so I'm looking forward to hearing what our, our uh, esteemed speakers have to say this evening. Thank you.
So uh, thank you very much, Sarah. And I should say we, we, we on the members of the IGC are very grateful for DFID's support and uh, foresight in establishing the IGC. And we hope that uh, through the efforts that we're making, we'll be able to do justice to, to what you, what you uh, have offered us. So um, now I would like to invite our, our speakers to come up. Um, and uh, we'll begin the panel on building effective states. So Sushil Modi and Paul Collier are, are coming up here. Uh, and I'm going to serve as a sort of warm-up act, but um, let me just... Uh, there's a ha one housekeeping announcement, uh, which I shall remind you of again at the, the end of the session, uh, which is that you, uh, everybody, I'm afraid, even those of you sitting on the left, have to exit by the right-hand door for various slightly complicated logistical reasons. So those of you who are on the left, you'll have to come round and find some way. I guess you can just sort of file into the empty rows here. Um, so I'd like, at the end, everybody to exit by the door on my right uh, over uh, at the back there. Okay, um, let's get on, on with the panel. I'm, I'm going to say a few introductory words in a moment, but before I do that, uh, let me just introduce the two panelists uh, to my left, and uh, I shall do so uh, um, somewhat briefly, so apologies to both of them if I don't capture the full uh, extent of their contributions and CVs. On, on the far left there is Mr. Sushil Kumamodi, is the principal architect of, I would say, of financial reform in Bihar, so it's, it's really a great privilege to, uh, to be able to introduce you and have you here. He, had, he joined politics in 1990 uh, and bec by uh, becoming a member of the Patna Central Assembly, uh, and within a brief period of his uh, entry into politics was made the chief whip of the BJP Bihar legislature. In 1996, he was chosen as the leader of the opposition in the state assembly and now serves as the deputy chief minister uh, and plays an ongoing role, uh, both working with the IGC, but more importantly working in, in Patna uh, on, on the, the reform agenda that we're going to hear about later. Um, Next to, to, to Mr. Modi is Paul Collier. Uh, Paul, uh, I don't think, needs a great deal of introduction, certainly in academic circles. Paul uh, is an academic, at the professor at the University of Oxford, who founded, um, among his many achievements, the, the Center for the Study of African Economies, um, has a very distinguished track record of research, particularly on the economies of Africa. Um, but uh, latterly has become, I think, a much-in-demand, probably one of the most in-demand uh, speakers on a wide variety of, of topics. His book, The Bottom Billion, I think was fairly regarded as a bestseller um, in, uh, in, in, certainly in academic circles and beyond. And his recent book, The Plundered Pla Planet, I think uh, resulted in him being invited recently to address the Jackson Hole Conference. And uh, he is now, as I say, become uh, uh, pretty much a household name in policy circles and is a member of the IGC and sits on our, on our uh, steering group and is one of the two academic directors along with, with Robin Burgess. So let me, I'm going to say, I'm going to say a word or two about the topic and, and use that as an, to sort of provide an opportunity for the two other speakers to tee off from, from this. To some extent, our panel represents very much what the IGC is about, though, because I'm going to be easily the most nerdy member of the panel, I predict. Uh, then we're going to go to Paul, who is kind of a bridge in many ways between the nerds like me and the policy sphere. And then finally, we're going to go to the policy end. So you'll kind of go across the spectrum. Um, but forgive, forgive, forgive me for, uh, for starting rather, rather nerdily. Now, um, uh, uh, Woody Allen famously, in one of my favorite Woody Allen quotes, 
said there's only two important things in life. One is sex and the other isn't that important. Um, and uh, <laughs> I think I'm going to almost elevate b- building effective states to the same status. That if there are two important things in life, I'm sure one of them is building effective states. Um, uh, and uh, we're going to have three presentations on the topic, and as I say, we're going to hear later. Now, actually, if you go back to Adam Smith, uh, he had a particular take on effective states uh, in this much-used quote, and I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, but it's in the sort of wonderful language which no one is able to write in anymore. Little else is required to carry a state to the highest degree of opulence from the lowest barbarism, but peace, easy taxes, and a tolerable administration of justice all the rest being brought about by the natural course of things. Uh, and uh, to some extent, I guess, I, I find myself reading this quote and thinking how much truth there is in this quote, although there's some stuff missing. Um, so what am I going to talk about? Uh, I'm going to talk about this, actually, which uh, you can uh, get a copy of, my latest book. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but if, you, if, you're, if you're too cheap to buy the book, you can get quite a lot of stuff on the website that we've created to go with it, where you can download the data. But actually, a lot of the ideas I am going to talk about are, are, in, are, in, are in the book that I just finished with Torsten Persson and came out. But let me tell you a little bit about why this book uh, that we've called Pillars of Prosperity is, uh, is relevant to the topic of, of this evening and why I think it's a good way to tee up in a somewhat nerdy way. I don't, I don't want to oversell this, by the way. It's sort of written with PhD students in economics in mind. I know I've just killed my sales by saying that, but actually <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not trying to compete with the bottom billion or anything like, like that, Paul. Okay. Basically, there are four dimensions of state building that I think we need to think about. And in terms of looking at the concrete policy issues that we confront in, in, uh, in dealing with the states, for example, in the IGC, not just the fragile states, but more generally, these four dimensions, I think, are all relevant. The first is building effective tax systems. Now, you could argue, if you go back, and I certainly would argue, if you go back historically, uh, building effective tax systems was the very essence of what the state was about, If you look at the origins of the state as an institution, it was very much around raising revenue in order, particularly historically, to fight war. Um, So there is actually a large discussion of the role of warfare in the creation of effective states, particularly in in early modern Europe. And Charles Tilley, who was a historical sociologist who sadly passed away last year, was one of the principal thinkers on the topic linking the creation of effective states uh, and uh, the raising of tax revenue and, uh, and the role of the state in the conduct of warfare. And I think it's fair to say if you look in the history of state formation, it's quite hard to get away from the fact that the fi- fighting external war was a, was a very important factor in state development. Uh, and many, many fiscal innovations, many, many fiscal innovations, for example, the adoption of income taxes in Europe were very much associated with uh, the need to finance war revenues. Uh, now, of course, uh, the, the policy implication from that, for, that you need to fight wars to generate uh, effective tax systems, cannot be something we would condone. But it, it gets us thinking about what, what it was that meant the warfare was able to galvanize such support. And I would argue that, in a very crude sense, the answer was effective public spending, in order, to be, in order for the citizens to submit their will to the sovereign and be willing to pay over large fractions of their income in the form of taxation, they had to believe in the causes, the things that the state was spending upon. And that meant having a system of public spending 
uh, which was broadly things which they viewed to be in the public interest. And the external warfare was the earliest example of that. Now, since the Second World War, in particular, if you look in Western Europe, we've managed to shift the locus of spending by the state, which would have been predominantly warfare spending in the early part of the 20th century, towards social spending. So if you look at the lion's share of public spending in the now developed world, it's on healthcare and education and social causes. It's not on military spending. But for the longest time, if you've gone back to 1910, I think very much in excess of 50% of public spending would likely have been on military uses. Now it's a tiny fraction, a relatively tiny fraction. But the story is, is, is still similar, I think, to Tilly's hypothesis, namely that effective public spending, showing that the state can and will spend the resources that it raises on uh, effective causes is what becomes the catalyst towards wanting to build effective tax systems. Now, perhaps a, a less obvious uh, aspect of state building to tie into this picture is the role of legal infrastructure. Uh, and, and I was interested in Sarah's, in, among the, the wish list and the, 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 the ambition for, for, um, for uh, uh, DFID's uh, uh, program, uh, I, one, one thing caught my ear, which was the reference to uh, uh, providing property rights. So one of the earliest and most basic functions of the state is to guarantee some kind of security of property, uh, and that requires building legal infrastructure, uh, allowing us to establish who owns which assets and for them to be able to defend their claims to those assets in court. And again, if you look at the origins of the modern state, alongside the key role of raising tax revenue was another key role of the state, which was to provide the legal underpinnings of effective markets. And interestingly, uh, I would claim there's a very important complementarity between tax systems and building legal infrastructure. Because once the state has the power to tax, the state has a strong in incentive to improve the workings of the private sector, if you like, to fatten the golden goose that's going to lay the golden egg, namely to generate higher returns through the tax system. So states that have built tax systems will often also have an incentive to build the legal infrastructure, both to raise the taxes that they wish to raise. After all, before you can raise taxes on some things, you have to measure it, and that means having a legal structure. So I think there's a strong complementarity between three and one, namely building a strong legal state goes alongside building a strong fiscal state. And Torsten and I, in our book, use the term fiscal and legal capacity to describe those, and we talk about building state capacity to mean making the investments that you need in those kinds, in the infrastructure that supports tax systems and infrastructure. And finally, the security. Another issue that's very basic to state development is providing both external security, which, as I argued, was the very foundation, I think, of the modern tax state, and providing internal security, guaranteeing that people can lead their lives without threat of personal violence. And indeed, one feature of countries with strong and effective states is there's very little use of political violence, either as a force for so where a government chooses to repress citizens in order to stay in office, or where a government, or, or where a government is unable to uh, establish law and order and there are issues of insurgency and civil conflict. So the absence of, a sec of security is also, or the development of security, is a key dimension of state building. So when we think about what it is that we're talking about in building effective states, I would argue these are, these are the four key dimensions that we should be thinking about. Um, one thing that's very striking, and this is just one illustration of it, 
is that the dimensions of effectiveness in the state tend to cluster. And this picture illustrates it extremely well. What I put on the uh, vertical axis is the tax share in GDP, uh, average between 1975 and 2000 of countries, and um, the index, an index of property rights protection produced by the International Country Risk Guide. And one thing I want you to observe is that there's a positive slope to the line linking those two. States that are more effective in raising tax revenue are also more effective in protecting property rights. Now, that, doesn't, that shouldn't surprise you by now, because I, I already argued that in a world where you've generated an effective tax state, you have a strong incentive to protect people's property rights so that the tax system can be an effective way of raising resources. What you see is the, also a cluster of red dots up to the right there, which are essentially countries that have achieved high levels of taxation and high levels of property rights protection. Within that cluster is essentially the developed world, as we might call it now. They're essentially European countries, uh, a few countries in, 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 uh, in, in North America and the usual places. What we see is then a distribution of other countries down uh, around the line at different levels of development. Um, I, I, I don't worry about the colouring of the dots. I pulled this from something else I was doing, but so don't worry about that. So we need to think about, if we're going to think about the problem of why states do develop in some places, why states become effective, we need to think, and this is a rather boneheaded idea, but I'm going to invite you to think about it, we need to think about the incentive to invest, much as we would in any context. Why will a state, why does a state have an incentive to invest in its own effectiveness. Because I think it's fair to say the technology exists. It's not, an, it's not a problem of technology. We know that there are technologies that allow states to become effective. We've observed the historical paths pursued by states to know that that's the case. So the question is, why don't states or why can't states adopt the technology to invest to become effective states? Well, the, arg the argument that I want to give, and I can only give, give it briefly, is it's really down to institutional factors that shape state incentives. And they come in the form of two broad categories. This is all simplified, I, 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 I grant you, but I just want to invite you to think in terms of two broad categories. The institutional factors that shape the, the incentives to invest are the factors that regulate and shape political turnover, and the factors that create constraints on power, in particular what we call cohesive institutions. Constraints on power that guarantee the state is not run in anybody's private interest, but run broadly in the interest of all citizens. Now, of course, that's a very vague notion, and one can make it more precise. So it's what creates those institutions for cohesiveness. And within that, Power comes and goes. Some groups compete for power. They may be in power or out of power. But over time, there are institutions to shape that as well. So what do you get out of this very simple way of thinking? I'm going I'm to mention uh, a way of thinking in a stylized way about the three kinds of state we might see in the world. And, of course, categories that, like this are too broad in some level to do justice to, the, to, to what the world looks like. But let me invite you to think in terms of three types of state. A cohesive state, and since my co-author isn't here, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll name Sweden. He's Swedish, so he'd love to know that in, my, in his absence. The, the, the Swedish state probably typifies in many respects a cohesive state. Uh, cohesion coming both through the design of parliamentary institutions built on coalition governments for the most part, 
built on protection of minority rights, built on, um, uh, on, on um, uh, a social norm or an ethic of, of community. And that, that gives you uh, a state which operates broadly in the interest of citizens. So do the citizens of Sweden mind giving more power to tax to the Swedish state? Well, on the whole, the evidence suggests not. Indeed, the Swedish tax take peaked at around 60% of GDP. It's true, they've rolled it back now to closer to 50% of GDP. And, of course, there are voices even within Sweden who would regard the state as, as too big at that rate. But the point is the process by which the Swedish government managed to uh, to, to raise 60% of GDP is a remarkable fact about the world. It really, you would stand back and think about why that is. That typifies what we call a cohesive state. Cohesive states come in many forms. I've picked a particular example in, 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 in the case of Sweden. But, uh, and of course, was built over a long historical period. But I would claim came through a series of conscious investments in the state, decisions to build all of the components I, talk about, I talked about on the previous list. Then there's a sort of category of state which we call redistributive or, and, and to some degree predatory states, although we make a distinction between redistributive and predatory states. I won't go into that in detail now. And Paul may pick up on, on the issue of predatory states uh, later. But uh, the, the, these are states which, one way or another, have very little political turnover. They're states where there is entrenched power, but with very little institutional restraint. And we see broadly these states come in two kinds of forms. Either they turn predatory and the state becomes a private fiefdom run on the behalf of a particular elite. And we observe that in a number of countries. That's what we call a predatory state. Or it can become a broadly redistributive state in the sense that one group in society uses the state essentially as an organ towards uh, redistributing towards its own group and, and, and against other groups in society. But these are states whose decisions to invest in the state are largely driven, if they make them at all, by the motive of essentially uh, long-lived political power. So the, the late, great uh, Mansur Olsen often used to remark, and some people have heard me say this before, but I, it's worth rehearsing, that it was rather odd, wasn't it? So he wrote this, this book on, uh, on, uh, on the power of the state. He said, isn't it rather odd that uh, in England what they say is long live the king? Uh, why do they say long live the king? Um, well, don't want them to say the king's a fine fellow or uh, give the king some money or whatever they could say, but they say long live the king. Well, why is that? That gives the king the best possible incentive to invest because if the king expects both to be in power and for his successors to be in power, etc., that gives very good incentives. So they say long live the king to, to, to provide the best incentives to build an effective state. Now, of course, I'm, uh, that, I'm sure that's fanciful, but the, the idea is that Political longevity can, uh, can sometimes substitute for, for constraints, not always, and that's the predatory state. And finally, we observe states in the world that have neither political stability nor cohesive institutions, and they tend to be the weak states of the world, the many that we see around the world, where states have not developed, in some cases, any of the four key uh, uh, investments that we said underpin uh, effective states. And the weak states of the world are very often those where the policy priorities are extremely pressing. Uh, and uh, so, so effectively, out of even a simple way of thinking, one can get some understanding of the particular d development paths that countries may, may, may or may not follow. 
Um, and of course, countries may flip around from one category to another. So you may begin in a situation where you're either a distributive or predatory states, but you can reform institutions to try and put yourself on a path of cohesiveness. And many of the difficult institutional reforms are really about which of these categories you, 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 your institutions are likely to lead you towards. So what does sustainable change require, and where can research, I think, make a difference in the broad agenda for thinking about state building? I should say, until I think very, very recently, economists have been thinking almost not at all about state building as an issue. Um, but there's now an emerging body of research, and even among political scientists, to be fair, the literature that would really fit into the mode of discussing state building has also been extremely limited. So we're now in a world where I think people are worrying a lot more about these issues and the forces that shape them. Now, broadly, there are sort of two ways of thinking about the forces that shape the kind of institutional change that we need to move towards cohesive institutions. One is a sort of formalistic view. It's about changing the rules. You can't achieve cohesiveness without redefining the rules by which a society operates. Now, per my personal view is that, on the whole, presidential government is an extremely difficult category of government in which to organize cohesive institutions. That if you have a parliamentary system with the checks and balances that come via a parliamentary system, you're much more likely to build the kind of effective institutions that underpin uh, formal changes in rules. And it's with some dismay that one has looked, if you look at the post-war period, a number of countries have dismantled their parliamentary systems and put in place presidential systems, which I think have considerably weakened the chance of moving towards cohesive institutions because presidential systems are, to some extent, have built in uh, features of non-cohesiveness. And many of the issues that the U.S. currently faces for that matter, I think, come from the difficulties that are imposed upon the U.S. by the presidential system. But I can amplify, on that, uh, amplify that point in the, in the discussion. But let me throw that out. So there's issues of formal rules. What type of constitutional arrangements do you want and how do you make them work? The other, though, is in some ways more tricky, but perhaps also equally important, and that's changes in norms and informal rules. If you could just rewrite the Constitution, then I think we'd have figured that out long, a long time ago, and we'd have moved and improved the world uh, much more readily than we have. And this is much more difficult, but I think it's also where a lot of the research action is currently coming in thinking about how can we research the question of how do we shift people's norms, how do we shift the, the informal rules that are used in making decisions about resource allocation? So when I gave you my somewhat rosy-eyed view of Sweden uh, as being a, a society in which people will adhere to communitarian norms, I'm sure there's lots of variation. It's one in which that's ingrained in the nature of the society. That's not just a feature of the rules that Sweden... Of course, Sweden may have adopted the rules to reflect its its culture and not its culture to affect its rule. But there's an important set of issues here. And there are issues, I think, in which we're beginning to, as uh, social scientists, get more deeply into. And so let me end very much on talking about the research challenge. Um, I think we, we need to be creative about the way we look at attempts to intervene, to try experiments, to try and really understand the forces that make rules work, make rules effective, make norms, embed norms, and change informal rules. And in fact, a lot of that agenda is actually already taking place to a significant extent in some of the projects that the IGC is funding, realizing that if you can't build an effective state, a state that builds and, and spends on the kinds of things that citizens want, a lot of the other 
things will not follow. So I think that, that's a really important area. But finally, and I think this is the hardest challenge of all to research, is kind of joining up the series of initiatives. What I think the research agenda has been very good at is sort of piecemeal analysis of specific reforms and saying, well, if we intervene in this way, we get this outcome or that outcome. I, th I doubt very much that any description, and this comes to my development clusters point that I, I made earlier, that any attempt to really transform the state could be done by simply reforming on one dimension. This is inherently a multidimensional problem, which is probably going to require reforms along a number of dimensions. And I'll see whether Mr. Modi finds that compelling, having been at the coalface, so to speak, or not. And I think, therefore, research has a particular challenge in teaching us and getting us to think about how it is that a series of uh, complementary changes need to be made to really make progress and to move things along, and how we can think about the evidence base that can allow those series of complementary changes to really make a difference. So uh, I'll stop there, and I'm going to hand over to Paul Collier. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. I, uh, um, I asked Tim to, uh, to depart from the initial plan was, uh, was that he'd share this thing, and I said, that's, that's not good enough. You've got to actually uh, devote serious time to setting out the, uh, the Besley model. Um, my yeah. Um, because, quite frankly, that's the best we've got on fragile states. We've got, we've got, the Besley model is decidedly unfragile. It's a, it's a really rigorous, solid exposition um, of, uh, and, and it's, a, it's a very clear hypothesis uh, about how effective states come about and by a small extension from that, um, how uh, some states don't go through that path. Um, now, and what I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to try and sort of bounce off that to say, well, is that diagnosis enough to, to tell us what to do in terms of policy? Um, and actually, I don't think Tim is going to disagree with anything I say, but it's a wonderful way of, of thinking about other things is to bounce off that model. So let me really brutalize your model into... into into grotesque simplification, which always gets Tim annoyed. So we start from uh, building an effective tax system, and that is an investment right, with a lagged payoff. So you either invest in a tax system or you don't. Right? If you make that investment, then um, you have an incentive to do more because you're going to capture a lot of the revenues from growth. And so what else can you do, having built the tax system, you can build property rights, the rule of law, infrastructure, all the public goods that make growth easier. So there's the, the sequence tax system fundamental as an investment. Why do some states not make that investment because, and this is, this is not Tim's only explanation, but it's, I think it's fair to say it's the lead explanation, is that why don't, why don't you make any investment? You don't make an investment if you're 
not going to be around long enough to see a payoff, or you're not sure that you're going to be around long enough to see a payoff. So instability in power is the antecedent to a decision not to invest in state capacity and building the tax system. So instability in power, you don't invest in the tax system, then you don't have an incentive for the state to do all the other things that would promote growth because you wouldn't capture the growth. So that's a, a drastic, over-drastically, I can see from the look on Tim's face, reduction of... of so you don't need to read the book. Um, <laughs> um, now, um, historically, I think that is actually a pretty fair description of the sequence by which effective states came about. Um, and as Tim says, the, 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 the impetus was, we need, why do we need revenues? Because we need to fight. Um, why do we need to fight? Because somebody else is invading us. Um, and then you get an arms race, which produces a tax race, which produces a race to build effective states. Um, the, the, I think the, the issue I'm going to, to pose is whether, despite that being historically the case, whether it's actually um, uh, a very helpful uh, insight on what to do now in a fragile state. In other words, should we start in a fragile state with tax? And maybe the answer is yes, we should. Right? Um, but maybe it isn't. If it is the right answer, yes, we should, without building a tax system, you're dead in the water, then it's actually pretty dismal news because, um, frankly, a lot of the governments of fragile states don't have a big incentive to raise revenues from tax. There's clearly political costs in doing that in the short term, clearly, and governments have other opportunities for getting revenues. The big opportunity over the next decade will be revenues from natural resources, which will be huge, and which don't require any taxation of the population. So you don't, cap you don't capture uh, the, the, the growth process, you just capture resource extraction. Um, the second source will, will be DFID. Um, we've just heard, DFID's aid, aid is going to be focused on fragile states for good reason, I believe. But if we were just to buy the idea that everything was going to be delivered by a tax system, we'd actually want to reduce the incentives to, uh, to, to not to have a tax system. As it were. Um, remittances, another route to uh, revenue is Big remittances now, especially in fragile states, because so much of the population, the skilled population, has left. It sends money back. How can you capture that? You overvalue the exchange rate. Okay. So there are a lot of other sources of revenues, which mean that the impetus to tax is going to be pretty weak. Um, so are there other points where we can break in to the sequence of building effective states? Um, and let me, uh, let me, let me suggest, um, I'm going to suggest three. Um, and, uh, and the first is to say, maybe um, if we go back to Tim's fundamental 
as it were, political disorder, um, maybe that shouldn't be the fundamental. Maybe there's something actually prior that is generating political disorder, political instability. And if we had to look for one thing that might be generating political disorder, I would point to unemployment amongst youth. Very, very low levels of proper jobs uh, for, y- for young people, and let's, uh, let's be gender-sensitive gender here, is actually young men who do the fighting. Um, so, um, could we break in um, to, the business, to the process of building an effective state not by providing tax, but by providing jobs. Now, having said that, jobs provision is easier said than done in these environments. So let me just have a little detour into what might be feasible strategies for generating jobs in fragile states, jobs for young men, jobs for young men without many skills. Um, First of all, one characteristic of fragile states is that they are fundamentally uncompetitive in the entire tradable sector of the economy other than for natural resource extraction where they've got um, local rents. Um, So the whole tradable sector is off limits for, uh, for a hope of job creation, I think. So let's have a look at the non-tradable sector. The non-tradable sector is, of course, the public sector itself. We don't really want to puff up a lot of public sector employment. That is a route to fiscal unsustainability, if ever there was one. So what's left? It's the private sector and the non-tradable sector, and we're looking for jobs. And the, uh, the area I would focus on is, uh, is the construction sector, is the generator of jobs for young men and what can we do to generate demand in the construction sector Um, you get some demand automatically through reconstruction but the reconstruction the grand reconstruction uh, tends to be pretty capital intensive and pretty import intensive there's a different form of construction which is very labor intensive and that's mass housing a striking feature of fragile states is that their population has urbanized, urbanized out of desperation. You come to the capital city because it's the only place that's halfway safe. It's urbanized, but people have moved into the most appalling slum conditions. There has been no house building. Now, Building mass housing is not rocket science. This is, I grew up in the city of Sheffield in northern England. Um, Sheffield was a classic 19th century boom town. America had the same with Chicago, Australia the same with Melbourne. In all of these cities, there was a, a couple of decades of meteoric growth where the main economic activity of the city turns out to have been building itself. The export phase from the city came later. For a couple of decades, the city builds itself, financed by capital inflows. Why has that not... That process of building created both jobs and decent housing. Why has that not happened in fragile states? 
as I say, it happened 150 years ago elsewhere. So it's not rocket science. But it takes coordination to make it happen because at the moment there are three very distinct impediments, siloed impediments. And the incentive to fix any one of these impediments is zero unless the other impediments are fixed. And they're politically siloed, so they just stay unfixed. One impediment is there is no affordable finance to buy housing. In the 19th century north of England, a new financial institution emerged, which became hugely successful. It's called the Building Society. And its business model was very low administration costs, very good collateral, and so very cheap lending, hoovering up savings deposits from ordinary people at very low cost. So finance, no finance, no demand for housing. Second impediment is no legal rights. No legal rights to housing. Housing can't function as collateral. And the third impediment is absurdly high unit costs of house construction, partly because building regulations in fragile states are set at the level of building regulations in the OECD. Utterly inappropriate, raising the cost of building so that housing is not affordable. As a result, people don't live in high-standard housing, they live in shacks. So here are three siloed impediments. If they were all removed, then we'd get Sheffield, Chicago, Melbourne. We'd get a phase of massive urban house construction, creating a lot of jobs and, at the same time, a more livable environment. Why hasn't it happened? A lack of coordination across these siloed policies. What does it take to get that coordination that I'll come to at the end. So there's one strategy for breaking in. Break in at jobs, not at tax. Um, let me take a, a second impediment, which is, um, and Tim touched on this, that it may be, uh, it may not be that the, the leader um, isn't sufficiently confident about power to actually invest in uh, a tax system which will only pay off much later, maybe the leader um, just doesn't want to build an effective state because the leader is predatory. Or, in Tim's other example, a redistributive state. And what the leader wants is actually to retain a dysfunctional state because it's only with a dysfunctional state that he can preserve power. And the classic example of that is, is after all, uh, Mobutu Zaire, where famously one of his um, policy rules was build no roads. Right? Build no roads. You don't need any tax revenue because you're not going to do any, you're not going to spend it on anything. Why did he not want to build any roads? Because with no roads, it was much easier to maintain security. Um, in that if that's what's going on, a predatory state, you don't even need this framework about investment. In other words, even if 
the payoff to a tax system and all the rest happened instantly. You just not choose to do it. And a good example of, of where it can't just be an unwillingness to make the investment is Zimbabwe. The relatively recent, Zimbabwe over the last 10 years. Because Zimbabwe had a tax system. It, raised, it had more tax to GDP than any other state in Africa. So it had an effective tax system which the political leadership chose to dismantle. It chose to dismantle it. It went instead for uh, inflation tax and the redistribution, the predation through the, the, the allocations of the central bank. So it chose to dismantle an institution. So saying it's, it, there's not an incentive to make an investment because it's, uh, the payoff will be too far in the future isn't enough to account for, for that terrible experience. So if, it's, if the fundamental problem is predatory leadership, what is the solution? And again, I'll come to it. And let me go to a third point at which you might break in. It may be that the problem is not that you can't raise tax. It's that you can't spend revenues effectively. Why might you not be able to spend revenues effectively? If you can't spend revenues effectively, there's no incentive to get the revenues in the first place. Why might you not be able to spend revenues effectively? Because, as a leader, you are presiding over a civil service which is effectively defunct. Why might that leadership, why might that public sector be defunct? Because the labor force has ceased to internalize the objectives of the organization. And this is, I'm keen on a a concept I call effective organizations. And an effective organization has two things. It has scale. Well, the public sector in Africa usually has scale. But it has also, an effective organization, manages to get its workforce to internalize the objectives of the organization so that motivation is built into the workforce. Economics has had a an unfortunate detour over the last 30 years into overemphasizing the importance of financial incentives as a means to, 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 to as an incentive to, to, to behavior. And uh, the latest work by George Akerlof um, really is, I think, a very fundamental and important critique of that, that most people are mainly motivated not, ju- not by uh, these high-powered incentives tied to narrowly defined performance because performance is not that observable, especially in the public sector. It's based on teamwork and it's not very observable. Good performance comes from internalizing the objectives of the organization. Even in the private sector, and the striking thing about Akerlof's work is that nearly all his examples come from private business. Even in private business, successful firms use this strategy of getting workers to internalize objectives much more than they do high-powered incentives. The only private organizations that relied entirely 
upon private, invest, upon private incentives were the investment banks. And look where that led them. Um, let me give you one uh, example of, um, of what I mean. And it's, it's such a brutal example, I'm not going to name the country, but it's an African country and it's the Ministry of Health in that country. And uh, along the donors came to this Ministry of Health and they went to the top of the ministry, the permanent secretary, uh, and said, uh, there's money for uh, antiretrovirals. This was the big um, global fund. Um, here's, will, you, will you take money and, and, and provide antiretrovirals to the population? So the permanent secretary in this Ministry of Health saw an opportunity, and taking off his permanent secretary's hat in the evening, he set up a company to import antiretrovirals into the country, which he then sold to the ministry because he then in the morning put his hat on as permanent secretary and bought it. But that wasn't enough because that wasn't profit-maximizing. The real profit-maximizing stroke was that his company imported fake antiretroviral drugs. Now, I use that as an example because this is, this is the guy who's at the apex of the, civil, of the civil service Ministry of Health. Right? So it's not, it's not even some politician who's just got there by improper machinations. He's been promoted up through the civil service ranks. And he's utterly failed to internalize even the most fundamental objectives of the organization he heads. Right? Now, suppose you're the president of a country and your civil service is at the top, full of people like that, you're stuck. You're just stuck, right? You can't spend money well, and so there's not much point in building a tax system that'll just raise it. So those are, I've suggested, points of... In fact, sorry, just let me build on that and say, if that's the problem, how do you fix it? Is it fixable? Um, for years, there's been attempts to do internal civil service reform, and that has usually been pretty unsuccessful, not always, but it turns out to be very difficult because a dysfunctional civil service is a locally stable equilibrium. The difficulties of reforming it is that everybody is going to turn up tomorrow thinking that everybody else will behave much as they did today, in which case they themselves will be a bloody idiot to change their behavior. So, Internal reform is very difficult. It's like rolling a ball uphill. The paradox is that in all these fragile states, alongside a dysfunctional public sector which has failed to internalize the objectives of basic service delivery, health and education, there are NGOs and churches where the workforce has spectacularly internalized the objectives and he's working for less money and doing an amazingly good job. They are not effective organizations because they're too small. Remember, an effective organization needs motivation and scale. And so one way out of this devastating position is to try and use public money to scale up the organizations which have already solved the motivation problem. 
I believe it's easier to make bigger organizations with a solve the motivation problem than to motivate workers in a big organization which starts from having failed that motivation. So, I've, just to summarize where we got to, and I'll draw to a close fairly shortly, the three places where you might want to break in other than by tax. Um, one is um, uh, jobs, one is um, the capacity to spend, one is the fundamental objectives of the leadership to shift it from being predatory. And now let me turn to the most esoteric uh, point to break in, but I'm going to argue that might be feasible too, uh, and that's culture. Um, culture. Cultures differ, and fragile states tend, I think, to have cultures which are dysfunctional in some quite specific respects. Um, typically, the view of the world of a person living in a fragile state would be that the world is zero-sum, the games being played are zero-sum, and we need to, the society needs to, to pass from that perspective of zero-sum to positive-sum games. If the only thing you see is zero-sum, you cannot agree on anything. Right? The second dysfunctional dimension of culture is that identities tend to be local Subnational, rather than national. In the all of the effective states, pretty well, went through a process of building national identity. National identities were built from the top. There's a famous book, Peasants into Frenchmen, which describes that process in France, or in Britain, Forging the Nation. The national identities were typically built by uh, the leadership during the course of the 19th century. Right? The myth that was often used was we're all a common ethnic group. That was just a load of myth. That was a mythology to sell the idea of belonging together at the level of a nation. So zero-sum, local identities, source of power, ruled by fear instead of legitimacy. Very much akin, actually, with what Tim was talking about. And so the passage from fear to legitimacy of government is another of these big cultural shifts. Finally, personalized loyalties moving into institutionalized rules as the things that influence behavior. So a major cultural shift is, I think, going to be necessary um, in uh, in fragile states. How on earth can we think about that in economic terms? Well, the answer here is that um, the methodology of experimental games has now given us a, a, a handle, a, a method to actually look at culture, to measure culture, to experiment with attitudinal change, with cultural change. In other words, we are at the very beginning of a research program which can endogenize culture and so think about how you pass from a dysfunctional culture to a functional one. Let me share with you a little bit of, um, of some of the astounding work in experimental psychology. 
Um, and, uh, and this really is astounding. What psychology has established is that there's an amazingly powerful tendency for people to copy each other. Um, that copying behavior um, begins at a very fundamental neurological level, at the level of things called the mirror neuron. I won't go into that, but the mirror neuron is a very alarming discovery from about 15 years ago. Um, but the heart of copying is not just at the level of individual neurons. It's at the level of stereotypes. And I now think of what do I mean by a culture, a menu of readily downloadable stereotypes into which young people uh, absorb. So young people download a menu of stereotypes, and that is a culture. And different people in different cultures downloading different menus of stereotypes. Um, let me give you um, a, 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 fig, a, a result from experimental psychology, but in one sense is rather encouraging. If you take um, young people, and uh, you, you've got two groups, uh, one group and a control group, um, and you tell them, you tell the, the group A to describe the attributes of a, of a professor like Tim, right? And so they go and they describe the attributes of the professor. And you tell group B, describe the attributes of a footballer, right? And they do that. And then you give the two groups the same academic test. The alarming thing is that there'll be a significant difference in performance. Group A will perform significantly better than neutral, group B will perform significantly worse. People turn out to be infinitely suggestible. Right? Obvious policy implication from this is that we should encourage people to think more about imagining themselves as professors. Um, <laughs> it works with other things. If you're asked to imagine yourself elderly or an athlete, if you imagine yourself, the group that's imagined itself elderly will then walk more slowly. Um, Rude, polite, same thing. Right? Infinitely suggestible. One area in which this is now being applied is, is in philosophy, where it's now, people, philosophers are now waking up to the, the whole idea of personal responsibility needs to be rethought because it may be that the, this model of personal responsibility that we've had for centuries is a bit exaggerated that it may be that responsibility lies not so much with an individual as with the people who shape the culture. It may be easier to change the culture, that is to change the menu of downloadable stereotypes, than it is to change the behavior of an already programmed youth. Right. Enough on that, but let me say that the if we think of culture as endogenous, if we think of it as a menu of downloadable stereotypes, and if we think of the downloadable stereotypes that people are being bombarded with every day in a fragile state, then we begin to see why behavior might be persistently dysfunctional and perhaps start to think 
how can we best change those downloadable stereotypes? So, I've given you three questions. How do you... Um, uh, um, so I think I've given you four questions. One was, how can you create jobs? And you have to break these siloed policy impediments. What you need is coordination across siloed policies. How do you end this uh, business of the predatory state? You've got to change the, the preferences, the priorities of the elite. Um, how do you uh, get out of the conundrum of a, a broken public sector? Well, ultimately, to get the public sector to work, you'd need to change the culture of public sector employees, which you might need to do more generally. How do you change those downloadable stereotypes? To all three, there is one answer. Leadership. In a fragile state, there is an irreducible need for good leadership. Good leadership can crack the siloed policy problem. It can coordinate unblocking apparently distinct policies. Good leadership can end the behavior of a predatory state. Good leadership, by speaking to ordinary citizens, communicating, can change the menu of stereotypes. And so where my long and meandering discourse has ended up is the answer to fragile states is leadership. And now let me hand over to a leader. Ladies and gentlemen, I am coming from a state known as Bihar, which has a population of more than 100 million, I think which is much more than what UK is having a population. And this state of Bihar, it qualifies on all the parameters of a failed state or a fragile state. Six years back when we came into power, I would not go into the details what was the condition in a state like Bihar. But the first thing, how we converted or we are trying to convert, we can't claim that now Bihar is not a fragile or failed state or it has become an effective state, but we are on the path of making Bihar from a failed state to an effective state. And I think the first thing which is required is the, is the political stability. Because in the last 40 years, in Bihar, no chief minister completed more than two years in office. Even if there was a, a single party rule, then also every two years or one year, the premier or the chief minister was changed. So the first thing required and what we achieved is the political stability. Number two, what uh, he was mentioning just now, is a, vis is a visionary, credible leadership. Because you don't have a credible 
leadership with a wide vision you can't transform a failed state into an effective state and under the leadership of mr nitish kumar was earlier a central minister in the federal government and when he became the chief minister because of his vision because of his impeccable transparent uh, honest leadership and a strong political will so the political stability the kind of political leadership the kind of vision that is required first to convert uh, a failing failed state into an effective state and the next bihar had a government but there was no governance so there is a difference between government and governance in all the african and all the poor states or countries governments are there but there is no governance so the first the the many of the steps we tried to put in place was put the governance on rail put the governance the system at place and so the biggest challenge for bihar was how to control law and order he was talking about the four pillars of prosperity and the last pillar was security but for a failed state like bihar law and order was the biggest challenge because kidnapping had become an industry in bihar because after after 7 o'clock in the evening people would not venture out of their houses because of fear of crime because of fear of law and order situation so the biggest challenge was how to control this law and order and i'm not going into the details but we were able to achieve now there is no fear psychosis now there is there is no fear incidents may take place but immediately the criminals are being arrested they are being tried they are being convicted so now people is uh, people are having faith in the legal system in the law and order so this was the biggest challenge and because of which we were able to achieve to in some extent from converting bihar from failed state to an effective state and the next step was how to improve the public finance he was just mentioning about the public expenditure because the last 30 years the budget was not passed before 31st of march every year the budget was passed in two installments we we made a decision that the budget will be passed before 31st of march then we enacted a frbm act fiscal responsibility in budget management act so how much loan a state will take so there was a binding that only 3% of the, uh, of gdp will be taken as a loan as a borrowing then the decentralization of financial and economic power earlier even if you want to spend 1 lakh of rupees you will have to go to the cabinet so there was an economic and financial power or administrative power was decentralized so for each and everything every decision should not be come for to the cabinet for taking a decision then the plan expenditure for 20 years the plan size could not the, the they could not spend the money and i would i would like to tell you that in the last 6 years our plan size increased as six times when we started in the year 2006 it was only 4000 crore and now it is 24000 crore so the plan expenditure of the plan size has increased 
six times in the last six years. Earlier it was it was stagnating for the last twenty years. Then cheaper loans from where the state can get cheaper loans. So we went for the World Bank. We went for the Asian Development Bank for the DFID and other uh, other loans from where the state can get a cheaper loan. In the same way, how to take more and more money from the central government? Because for taking money from the federal government, you require uh, you, you, you require a certain amount of money as a state as a state share. If you want to take a, one million rupees from the federal government, the first you will have to, you, you should have 10% or 20% of the money, then only you can take the rest of the amount. So the earlier governments they could not take money from the central government. So in India, that is only the centrally sponsored schemes. So now, they, now we are providing money at the state share and taking more and more money from the central government to spend. And the some most important thing was effective monitoring and review. Earlier there was no monitoring. What is happening? There was no review, there was no monitoring. So for effective state, you require effective monitoring and effective review of the whole expenditure or uh, of the entire system. And the second important point was tax reforms. There, on this liquor, the, we used to get about 250 crore, I'm not converting into the pound and in the million or billion. For 20 years, there was no tax reforms. And as soon as we came into power, we brought, we implemented this VAT system. Then we brought about the change in the excise policy, in the road tax, in the transport policy. And because of the tax reforms, in the last six years, the tax have increased four times, five times, and in the excise from 250 crore, it has increased to 2,000 crore. So there is an increase of 10 times revenue from the liquor, from the spirit, only because of the intervention in the policy framework. So the tax reforms was also a very important thing to, to get more and more money. In the same way, you require manpower. We for the last 20, 30 years, people were not appointed. There were no engineers. There were no, in the last 20 years, doctors were not appointed. Engineers were not appointed. So there was no appointment. And we recruited more than 0.2 million teachers in one stroke, in which we call 2 lakh. It is 0.2 million. I think it is 0.2 million. 2 lakh is 0.2 million. We appointed 2.2 million teachers. Now we are appointed doctors, engineers, because if you want to spend money, if you want to implement some programs, you, you require manpower. And earlier that manpower was not there. And to adopt best practices from other states. You don't require to reinvent a wheel. Already wheel is there. So uh, the, uh, the uh, other states of India, Karnataka, Andhra, Gujarat, Maharashtra, all the developed states. So taking best practices, adopting best practices, and learning from their achievements and from their failures. So we had an advantage of taking best practices from, the, from other states. In the same way, we started meeting the people. Because you know in our state, 100 million, 100 million people are there. And 70% of population is a poor, 
people who are below poverty line they must they, they might be earning not more than 1 dollar per day so in a state where 70% of the people are below poverty line in a state where per square kilometer the density of population is 1100 in britain in uk uh, i i was uh, reading the morning is 245 or 300 people per square kilometer but in our state 1100 people reside in one square kilometer in our state two third of the area is the flood affected area is prone to the flood so meeting the people so our chief minister and all the ministers all the bureaucrats every week they have to they have set aside two hours three hours to meet the common man without any appointment and so by by that we started getting feedback from the people how are the how are the government schemes are being implemented what are their problems what are their issues and we called it a janata darbar janata darbar means people's people's court so every every monday the chief minister he meets more than 2000 3000 people we're sitting 6 hours meeting each and every individual coming people from the entire states and so getting more and more feedbacks and in the same way there was no roads in bihar the road roads conditions very bad in bihar so we we so the highest priority was given to the roads and in the last 6 years we have built a large network of roads and that is also brought about a big change in bihar and then in the social intervention small intervention can can bring about lot of change you can't imagine we provided for the reservation of the women in the urban local bodies and the village local body elections and bihar is the only state in in india where more than 50% reservation has been given to women in the urban local bodies and in the what we call panchayats or the village local bodies and by this single stroke we have been able to achieve what we could have achieved in 30 40 years by by this single stroke of giving reservation to women there is a tremendous change in the country yard of uh, in the countryside of bihar you can't imagine the women who were in the ghungat what you call in parda system the women who were illiterate the women who could not address the public meetings they are illiterate they could they could not even put their signature and now the level of confidence because of by giving them reservation in the panchayats so i'm just i'm mentioning about the by by, by making small interventions you get a result which would have get result in uh, 10 20 30 years in the same way we started distributing cycle bicycle to the uh, to the girl students who are studying in class 9 because very few students used to go to class 9 and because of the conditions in the countryside the and because of the cultural ethos and the in the system women do, the girls they don't go to the schools in a, in good number and we announced a program that any girl student who will who will who will go to class 9 she will get 2000 rupees to purchase a bicycle and it will surprise to in the last 5 years we have distributed money to purchase more than 3 million uh, uh, more than 3 million bicycles so the number of cycles which would have been sold in india in the last 50 years in the last only 4 years more than 30 lakh bicycles had been purchased by the girls and by the students who were studying class 9 
So these small interventions. And another thing, providing free medicine in the hospitals. In a, in a, state, in a poor state like Bihar, where the, uh, the each and every individual had to purchase medicines. We started providing medicines in the hospitals. And the number of patients visiting the hospitals increased 100 times, 200 times in many of the hospitals. In the same way, giving incentives for the institutional delivery. As you may be knowing, in our state, most of the delivery, they are being uh, conducted in the houses, in the homes. But when we started giving incentives, uh, if any women, the, if the in the delivery is being, if, the, if a baby is being delivered in the hospital, they will be given 1,200 rupees. By this small intervention, the number of institutional delivery has gone by more than 50 or 60 times. So, and the one important thing regarding the corruption, all this money was given by system of cash transfer. It was not that the government of Bihar purchased bicycle and giving, distributing the bicycle to the students. We gave, we gave them cash money and we asked them, you go and buy your bicycle and we'll surprise to know that in this cash transfer system, there was hardly 2 or 3% of leakage. And most of the girls' students, they purchased their bicycle. So now there is debate going in our country regarding this cash transfer. So we, uh, we in a way implemented this cash transfer in purchasing bicycles. In the same way, giving school dress to the girls' students and the boys' students. And we now, more than 10 million Every year we are giving money to the girls and boys, more than 10 million boys and girls, money to purchase school dress because they don't, they don't have a proper dress to go to the school. So many of the girls, they are not able to go to the school because they, they, have, because they have only one dress. And how to go to the school? So just I'm mentioning that about bringing about these simple, these very small interventions we had been able to bring about a lot of change in Bihar. In the same way, corruption is a big issue in Bihar. Uh, corruption in all the third world countries, the implementing machinery is very poor and there is a lot of leakage and the people don't have a faith in the government system and if you spend 100 rupees, hardly 20 or 30 rupees or 40 rupees, uh, it reaches the beneficiary and the rest of the money is being uh, is being siphoned off by the middleman or the, by the bureaucracy of the corrupt politicians. So we were able to put faith in this in the system, and we we uh, I don't have sufficient time, but I would like to tell that we have taken uh, we have taken many steps to con to contain this corruption, and recently we have enacted a law in which each and have most of the Public services have been have been provided timetable. If you want a certificate, it will take two weeks. And if the government servant he does not provide with the income certificate or the residential certificate within two weeks, he will be uh, he, he will be penalized. So this right to service act has been implemented about two months back in Bihar. And then all the ministers and all the bureaucrats they are to declare their property. And we have made it mandatory that all the employees of class 1 to class 3, every year they will have to declare their property. 
and anybody can go and see how much property he is having on the website and if he he goes to the government officials and say that he has uh, he has concealed some of his properties then action will be taken against them so friends uh, as earlier i said it is not that we have converted bihar into a uh, into an effective state but we are trying we are trying to build because we started when we came into power there were remington typewriters in the office though the computers were there but they were not knowing how to use the computers and most of the government staff were still using that uh, that remington typewriters they were feeling more comfortable using typewriters than the, uh, the uh, than the computers but in the last 6 years we have made maximum use of the it and i think for the third world country the poor states the it is a uh, it is a panacea of most of the corruption and most of the thing to deliver in time uh so in the last uh, five five or six years we have uh, we have initiated many of such steps and trying to convert a failed and fragile states like bihar into a effective states and now bihar is poised to become a major agriculture economic powerhouse the next 10 years cannot be the same as past 10 years both our challenges and opportunities are enormous we must grasp them we cannot afford any more to hasten slowly we must hasten and we have taken a pledge if we want to make india super power in the 21st century if india want to become strong then bihar has to become stronger without without a, a state like bihar having a population of more than 10 million 100 million if that state cannot become stronger india can't become stronger so friends uh, in this way we are trying our best there are many challenges there are many problems we have to face but we are on the path of development we are on the path of making bihar as an effective state and the points which you mentioned the pillars of prosperity so without reading our book we are trying to implement most of the features uh, you have mentioned in your book because we are not an economist we are not an academician we are a, we are we are political workers and we work by perceptions but if you have a strong will power and if you are honest that you want to bring about change in the society you can bring about change in the society and now people are saying if bihar can be changed any anything can be changed so bihar had an image it was like a cancer patient people had lost faith in bihar ki nothing will happen in bihar nothing can change in bihar so now people are talking and i thanks uh, igc for uh, for organizing this conference and making bihar a point of discussion now people are discussing the achievements of bihar so if uh, a failed and fragile states like bihar can uh, can start on the path of effective state i think each and every state can be converted or transformed into effective state but you require political will so thanks one again to the my friends from igc for giving me an opportunity Okay, we we have a few minutes for uh, questions and comments from the floor. I really would would ask that you make your uh, interventions very brief so that we can have the maximum uh, rate of participation. 
Uh, what I'm going to do is collect a few comments uh, and then bring it back to the panel periodically. So uh, you caught my eye first. So I think there are roving mics. So if I could ask you to wait until you have the microphone in your hands uh, before you actually uh, uh, start your comment. So thank you. And actually, if you could say who you are and where you're from, that would also be of interest, I think. Hi, um, my name is Ambreen Malik. Um, I am with the LSE. Um, I come from Pakistan, and uh, hence the question of leadership to both the gentlemen. Um, you have talked about leadership. How important it is to change a country. Would you actually share, shed some light on how to build the leadership? Leadership is great, but we didn't talk about how do we build good leaders, hmm. and that is the big problem. Um, Small comment to Muti Saab is, uh, can Pakistan borrow you for a few days? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, I've seen a hand up over there and one to the next one. So you go left and then right, and then uh, I'll kind of try and do my best to get as many people in here. Go left there. Yeah, a gentleman in the white shirt there, yeah. Hi. A um, couple of points for Paul Collier. Um, firstly, the... the the idea of construction uh, as a way to create mass employment sounds slightly odd to me, given you know housing bubbles in the Middle East. You have a lot of construction, but what you know what good has that done their long-term opportunity? So, is that really sustainable as a strategy beyond a couple of years? Secondly, your story of the permanent secretary of the Ministry of Health, um, high-level corruption is not unique to fragile states. You just have to look at America and the UK to see that. So, again, I don't really see the uh, major importance of those analytical points. So perhaps there's something deeper uh, than those. Thanks. Okay. Let's cross the... Actually, whilst you're still there, keep, keep, just pass it over there. There we are. Uh, hi. Uh, my name is Zarya. I'm a management student at LSE. And uh, my question is to you, Mr. Modi. I come from Bihar, too. So I've been to recently to my state and I've seen the great development work done by the government. As you said, like Bihar is going, uh, becoming an agricultural economic power. How do you foresee getting more, uh, making it a more industrial hub, something like Gujarat, getting it more industrial inputs, industrial, uh, making it an industrial hub uh, along with the agricultural power? Okay, then down the front here, gentleman in the, the blue tie there, passed along. My question, my question again is to Mr. Modi. I come from Bihar as well. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> there are lots of people. <laughs> uh, I have a couple of questions. One being, uh, you've mentioned on how you've touched upon the small-scale problems, giving you know, clothes and bicycles to people who could not afford them. What have, uh, are there any steps being taken to you know, bring people who have moved out of Bihar? Because there are a lot of skilled people who moved out of Bihar for either studying or higher studies or working. Uh, for employment, sorry. Uh, is there any plan to attract these people back to Bihar? Because the way I say it, after beyond a point, uh, if you really want development beyond a point, it has to come from entrepreneurs and people who are you know, generating value in society. That is one question I want to ask. And second being, uh, both of you touched on uh, the importance of human resources development and uh, society for development. Uh, tell me is there an option for somebody who is not a civil servant? I'm too old to prepare for IAS or administrative services exam. Is there a way, is there a policy to you know, bring people back into mainstream 
civil services using the skills that I have and not going through IS. Okay. Um, let's pass along. There's a gentleman at the end of the row there. So if you could pass that along there. Um, I'm Thomas Card with the IGC Sierra Leone. Um, and I was just wondering, when Melbourne and Sheffield and Newcastle and the other cities that um, Dr. Collier wants to recreate were founded, um, construction wasn't non-tradable. But living in West Africa, how non-tradable is it when Chinese firms come bringing all the labor, all the materials, all the, 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 the capital from their countries and then leave again? Um, and does that not undermine the kind of this push in these countries? Okay, thank you. Now, if there's someone else, so down the front there. Could you go down the front there, and then, then we'll come back to the panel, and I'll go another round. Okay. Uh, hello, my name's Drashborn. I'm not from Bihar. Among the things that were <laughs> talked about was a need for leadership and a need for long-term political stability. And if we talk about Bihar having chief ministers only serve two years, uh, is Mr. Collier's model something we call for a longer-term, maybe non-democratic leadership that was legal-bound? So are we looking for states that are more like Singapore, 1950s Japan, rather than competitive democracies in administering this kind of growth. Okay, I think there's a few issues there. So if we could, if we could ask the panellists to, to respond to some of those. Apologies to, to people who've asked questions if they're not fully addressed, but why don't you just give a brief response and then give, we'll give time to go for another round. So uh, why don't we start with Mr. Modi. Uh, regarding this industrial, uh, bring, making Bihar industrial hub, the process has already started. Though big industries like Reliance, Ambani's, or Birla's, they may, they may not have come to Bihar. But small investment of 50 crore, 100 crore, they just started pouring in Bihar. In the last three years, many of the biscuit companies like Parley and, Parley and Britannia, the big cycle companies, so the, the industry has started coming to Bihar. But it takes time. Because the last, the last five years in the, in the last regime, uh, we had to spend time to build a confidence. People had no confidence that ca can we invest in Bihar. So now that confidence is there. And we have put in place most of the policies and the industrial for the industries for the investment. So now it has started coming. The, uh, so it has, the process has already started. And regarding skilled people coming back to Bihar, so now in this, uh, uh, in this uh, world of uh, globalization, globalization, when people from Punjab, they can go to work in UK and other places. So you can't, you, you can't force anybody that you can't go. It is better if people are going outside the state and earning more and more money. But still we are trying to make an atmosphere congenial so people are coming back to Bihar. And nowadays, uh, many of the young people who are in Mumbai, who are in Chennai, who are in Bangalore, they are now coming back. They are starting their profession. They are setting their industries. They are in other professions. So now that uh, process has already started. Okay. Um, first, how to build good leaders. Um, there's an exit process and an entry process. Um, the exit process has just had what might be called a great leap forward um, from North Africa. Right? Exit looks a lot more 
uh, a lot more straightforward than it used to. Um, the entry process, I think, is more subtle. Um, and I recommend a, a, a short and brilliant book uh, called Principled Agents um, uh, by none other than Tim Besley. Um, um, and let me put a little, uh, add a little two penneth here. Um, that um, the, the, the politicians from whom people can select the menu of politicians um, really depends upon a lot on money and, and incentives. That whilst ever the budget is lootable, um, that privileges the corrupt politicians over the honest politicians. It gives an incentive for corrupt politicians to come forward because they can loot the budget, and having looted the budget, they can run patronage systems and therefore defeat the honest. Um, Britain has only had one serious fraud office prosecution of corruption in the whole of the decade of legislation. Uh, and I know about that case because I was the uh, expert witness for the prosecution. Um, and uh, it, w it was corruption in, in, in bridge building, 15% sort of thing. And I, I, the, the serious fraud office expected me to say, what was the cost of this? Well, bridges cost 15% more. But that wasn't the cost. I looked, at the, I looked into the detail of the case. Mester 15% had initially worked in the Ministry of Public Buildings and Works, but having acquired his 15%, instead of going off uh, to, to live the life of Riley, um, he, he invested the money. He was far-sighted. Um, uh, and he invested it in a political career. By the time this case came to court, he was his country's Minister of Transport. So... Um, you know, he had defeated honest people to become that minister. And the root cause of that was the finance of his patronage politics through corruption. Um, the uh, two, two questions about the construction, the, the idea of mass housing. Um, no, I think the analogy with two-year bubbles in, in the OECD is, is, a, is a mistaken analogy. Of course it's possible to mess up housing, and you know, Britain managed to do it, so did America, but, um, but this is a distinct process from actually going from millions of people living in shacks to millions of people living in decent, simple housing. That's not a process of two years, it's a process of two decades. And so it's a lot of employment for a long time. As a questioner said, uh, it, the, the danger is that the construction, construction sector has become much more tradable because of the entry of China. In estimating the costs of using the Chinese, I think it's important to think of the shadow wage and not just the actual wage. In a fragile state where the alternative for young men is to cause trouble, the shadow wage is very low indeed. And so it's sensible to use domestic labor rather than import Chinese. Um, there's a little question about surely there's corruption in the civil service in Britain and in America. Um, let's get real. Um, if we look, it's not just corruption at the top, it's corruption all the way down. If you look at the typical teaching hours of public sector teachers uh, in many African countries, they're amazingly short. 
people are employed, they just don't teach. An hour a day is about the, the sort of average, right? Nurses um, sell drugs. They steal drugs and sell them. You know, I mean, this, these are amazing collapse of, uh, of the basic morality of what a public sector is about. And we shouldn't pussyfoot about. That's what's happened. Um, and finally, the, the, the deep and explosive question, should we be aiming for Singapore uh, or for the sort of fully participatory democracy? And, uh, um, uh, I think um, the answer is uh, either we'll do the job or can do the job of getting a fragile state um, out, of, out, of, out, of, out, of, out of a trap. Um, there is not one single political route out, and we would be uh, doing everybody a disservice if we adopted our own personal preference of democratic participation as, as trying to claim that that was the only route out. Um, uh, I believe it's a perfectly viable route is indeed the Singapore route of a benign leadership. Um, if it were just a question of have autocracy, uh, there wouldn't be any fragile states in Africa. Africa's had plenty of autocracy. It, maybe it needs democracy, maybe it needs benign autocracy. In Africa, the great advantage of democracy is that in a multi-ethnic society, uh, autocracies have a nasty habit of turning sectarian into the the group redistributive state that, uh, that is in Tim's world. Thank you. Just, just one brief additional comment on that. In, in a paper I wrote a few years ago, we looked at the distribution of growth performance by political regime. And while the mean performance under democracy is modestly large in autocracy, the variance under autocracy is enormous. Essentially, the big growth collapses in the world have almost all occurred under autocratic regimes. There have been, at the other extreme, some successful autocracies, but the distribution... In a sense, the risk you're taking by thinking there's an autocratic route to success is an, is an extreme risk. You've got to be sure you're in the top right-hand tail and not in the bottom left tail. And unfortunately, it's very hard to predict which one you're going to end up in. Okay, uh, we've got probably time just for one or two more comments or questions if there are any. Um, one down, down here. Again, please keep them brief and then we'll wrap up fairly uh, well, shortly. Thank you. Uh, this uh, question is to uh, Paul uh, regarding uh, conflict and post-conflict situations. In both the cases, uh, lack of commitment and motivation is obvious. Do you suggest any shorter way of dealing with the situation? Otherwise, it requires generations to bring improvement. Thank you. Okay. Any other question. I think we have time for one more. That, that's the one that caught my eye up at the left and at the back back. Sorry? No, up, along the, uh, along, uh, okay. May I seek your indulgence uh, uh, Tim, to ask this question. This question is to uh, Paul Collier. I should have introduced myself. I'm N.K. Singh, Member of Parliament from India. My question is to Paul Collier. Uh, for several decades, Africa turned out to be a set of countries with failed old development paradigms, which was introduced by 
every conceivable international organizations. Now, the record in the last, dec last five years suggests that large numbers, several African countries have shot ahead and have really begun development in right earnest. In terms of the kind of typology which you have mentioned, which are factors motivating the development, what do you consider, Paul, are the fundamental changes that Africa has experienced to turn what was really a failed development paradigm into a rapidly growing state? Okay, so I'll take the gentleman just along the row, row there. If ask a brief question and I'll wrap up the session. Yeah, thank you. Uh, my name is Hans. I'm a student at LSE. I had a question to Professor Collier as well. I noticed that some of the problems you talked about, namely the exploitation of national resources and corruptions, may to some extent be caused by the uh, inflow of developed market cash to the emerging markets. I was wondering to which extent you believe that the developed market uh, cash inflow hampers the political development in these growth markets. Thanks a lot. Okay, thank you very much. Now, Mr. Modi, you're welcome to make some final comments, but otherwise uh, most all the questions were, were actually addressed to Paul. So, Paul, why don't you just briefly wrap up and, and answer which, some of those questions? Okay. Thanks. Um, yes, yeah, so the really a brutally good question was post-conflict situations. Is there a short way to motivation, or is this intergenerational? Um, I don't know. And... Uh, but I think it's just about researchable. Um, and let me give you one analogy, which has always struck me, actually, in post-conflict. Um, remember those images of Germany post-war? And here was a, a, a defeated, demoralized population. But what the concept was introduced by the new government, zero hour, right? And zero hour was the, the start of the new. And then the whole population was literally mobilized into rebuilding the state, rebuilding the country, and the starting with the very basic physical process of clearing the rubble, which was a mass activity. Everybody was involved first with this concept of draw a line, we start now. The clock, the future starts ticking now from zero. And then everybody helped build okay, in a very humble, fundamental way. Okay. I've, I've been involved a little bit in Haiti post-earthquake. And what struck me there was there was no equivalent of zero hour and a mass involvement in... Uh, in the process of clearing the rubble. The rubble's still there. And so, um, again, it's, it's leadership coming in and actually harnessing that, op that opportunity of disaster to actually reset uh, motivations. Um, an uh, excellent question. Africa is now growing. What, what's been different um, and uh, let, me let me point to three things that are different. Right? One, very obviously, is, is, this, is a, this is a commodity boom. Um, and so uh, Africa is a commodity exporting region. And so that has given a, 
big impetus to uh, basically export revenues have gone up enormously. Now, that's a start. It's not the end of the story. I think um, uh, a second very important feature is that gradually, almost unnoticed, Africa has massively improved its macroeconomic performance. You know, the, the, if we go back to the 1980s, this was debt. Um, and then there was another of these line-drawing exercises. It was Jubilee 2000 and debt relief. And so the line was redrawn. We're back at, at, at zero, zero debt, in effect. And, the, and African governments had learnt that uh, bad macroeconomic policies didn't benefit anybody, really. And so uh, it's been a very, uh, very prudent uh, set of macro policies. I mean, I, I was recently in Rwanda. Uh, debt to GDP, 27%. Uh, inflation rate, 1%. Would you rather be holding Rwandan debt or Greek debt? Um, uh, and, and, and a third process is at work, um, social learning. Um, societies are not condemned to repeat their history. Right? That's a glib uh, idea of repetition of history. Societies can and do learn from past mistakes. The searing example in Europe of social learning is as follows. What is the best managed economy in Europe? No prizes. Germany. Right? Why is Germany the best managed economy in Europe? Because it used to be the worst. Germany, uniquely in Europe, went through hyperinflation. Three generations ago, but the population still has that experience seared in its memory and is going to avoid inflation at all costs. That is social learning. Africa is well aware that it's been, that its history is one of resource plunder. And across Africa, there's that same sense as post-inflation Germany, never again. The challenge now is to harness that sense for the institutions and the rules and the adherence to the rules that will make a difference, as Germany did. Oh, we, need to, we need to wrap up. Yeah, and uh, the, uh, the last question was too big to be given uh, sensible treatment in 30 seconds, so I'll stop there. Thank you very okay, much. Okay, well, apologies for calling an abrupt end to proceedings, but we need to, we need to move out of the room now. But uh, before we do that, I shall thank our panellists, uh, Mr. Modi and Paul And thank you all for coming, and I hope some of you will come to our events later in the week.